Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Alan Weissman will join us to discuss Countdown. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, humans are a constant source of pressure on the Earth's environment. Can the Earth continue to sustain human civilization? And what can be done to ensure a sustainable future? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Alan Weissman. Mr. Weissman is the author of several books, including The World Without Us, which was the international bestseller translated into 34 languages. He has uh, written his new book, Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, and he joins us today to discuss this very fascinating issue. And Mr. Weissman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book here, uh, Countdown, uh, which you've written, in which you explore the growing population uh, of the Earth and uh, really if it's, if it is a sustainable future. Uh, why did you decide to write this book? Well, you know, you mentioned my last book, The World Without Us, which I really wrote because I wanted a world with us. The idea was to kind of clear the decks of us by theoretically wiping us off the map and showing how nature could respond without the daily pressures that we're constantly heaping on it. And then I hoped readers would begin to think once they saw how beautifully nature can recover, wonder if there's a way to add ourselves back into the picture, but in a balanced, harmonious way and not in, in locked in constant combat with nature as we seem to be these days. But I ran into a uh, rather disturbing fact that, it, it, you know, trying to quantify somehow what our impact was on the planet and how much we are overwhelming it, it turns out that about every four to four and a half days we're adding a million people to the planet. That just doesn't sound very sustainable to me. I kind of left that question dangling at the end of the world without us in the epilogue. Should we possibly be thinking about doing something about it? And it turned out that that was enormously interesting to readers. Every time I gave a talk about that book, everyone wanted to talk about that question. But it turns out to be such a loaded issue, you know, because religion gets involved and people's fears about, you know, economic growth. What would that, you know, what would happen with a shrinking population? And all of these things. It's just a loaded question. And finally, I realized that it wasn't being addressed very much because it was so loaded. Environmental groups tend to avoid it. Uh, so I decided that a journalist really needs to look at this thing objectively and try to figure out, can we determine how many people this planet can hold without tipping over? So that's what led me to write Countdown. And you took a very interesting approach by uh, travel the world and see how overpopulation affecting different cultures, communities. Did this sort of approach give you a better insight than look at raw numbers, statistical data, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of books that have been written about politics, about population by demographers and statisticians, and 
though there's important information in them, and Lord knows I read a lot of them. I mean, the last nearly 100 pages of this book are my bibliography in pretty small type. Kind of dry reading. I mean, demographics, you know, which is the study of trying to count us and and quantify our behavior on this planet. It's sort of accounting, and accounting is not what you settle back in your easy chair with to, uh, to read. I, I ended up traveling to 21 countries for this book, and part of the reason was that I needed to put a human face on this question. I've made a career as a writer by oftentimes writing about difficult, sometimes technical, technically difficult things or or uncomfortable, disturbing things. And the only way you can get readers to follow you into such thickets are by couching them in a very human story. So it's not just about what the scientist uh, is telling us, but how did the scientist get interested in this in the first place? Where, where did her passions lie? What, what happened in her life that made her suddenly an expert in, in whatever it is that we're, ta- that we're talking about? But there was also another reason why I went to so many places. I boiled the research for Countdown down into four basic questions. One I've already mentioned, how many people uh, can this planet tolerate? Then there's the converse question, uh, you know, how much nature do we need to preserve in order to guarantee our own survival? Uh, can, can we even determine which species are essential to us? Then there was a third question, which was given that most people are appalled by the first thing that comes to their mind when they think about managing population, that's China's one-child policy. You know, nobody wants to be coerced by having some government tell us what to do with our private lives or in our bedrooms. I, I, I needed to find out, is there anything in the cultures, the histories, the liturgies of a broad swath, you know, the majority of the world's different nationalities, religions, cultural groups, etc., that might accommodate the idea of, in times of need, not constantly expanding through you know, exponential reproduction, which is what our organism, like every other species, is designed to do. But to, so to speak, refrain from embracing so much if, if necessary. And to do that, I had to go to all different kinds of countries uh, to look at a, you know, t- take a real cultural temperature of the planet. The fourth question, by the way, also is aided by this, which is, you know, if we have to stop growing or even shrink down to a sustainable size, how do we design an economy that can prosper without depending on perpetual growth. And some of the best examples I found, one in particular, were outside of the United States. Worldwide pressing issues, as you find, and and even if a solution were agreed upon, the the solution would involve bringing together all these disparate cultural entities to you know implement any kind of population control. Do you think that's even possible? Well, you know, as I mentioned before, nobody likes the Chinese policy because there was a government trying to implement population control. The phrase "population control" automatically repels us. What interests me about the population issue is that the best ways that it's been dealt with on this planet, the most effective ways, in fact, in one case that I state, uh, which surprises everybody because it's in a Muslim country, it actually 
addressed the question more effectively and faster than China did with its one-child policy. But the best programs have been voluntary programs. They're ones that don't tell people what to do, but they make it darn attractive for them to have fewer children. They make them believe that it's in their best interest as well as the nation's interest or in uh, in, in the premise for my book, the ecosystem's interest for there to be fewer of us impacting the planet. The idea that we don't have to wait for a government to make a decision for us or we don't have to fear that a government is going to start legislating this stuff is why I found this to be one of the hopeful, most hopeful approaches to dealing with environmental pressures that, I could, that I've ever run into. In fact, I came out of this book much more hopeful than I went into it when I found out not only how possible it is in a wide variety of settings and cultures, but also how affordable it is. And the fact that this is not one that depends on coming up with some fabulous new technologies for, say, zero emissions energy. This is something we already know how to do. Uh, isn't a large driver of population growth in the poorer countries and convince individuals in those poor countries to have fewer children might be a lot more difficult, especially if it's coming from the viewpoint of individuals in more developed or wealthier nations? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, the, the idea that we can tell other people how to live their lives is, you know, pretty presumptuous of us, and it's the type of thing that has ultimately, in more often than not, caused a lot of those countries and cultures a great deal of pain. The, the idea, though, that we can give people more choice to decide what to do with their lives simply by making contraception widely available, which is a big part of the problem in poor countries. That's something that you know, it turns out oftentimes to be welcomed. I mean, even in, you know, the United States is one of the biggest donors of, of contraception in the developing world, which is something that actually that pleases me for a change. What my government's doing with our tax dollars, and you know, I was in some countries where the United States is not particularly popular for lots of reasons. Uh, one country I was in, Pakistan, you know, there are, they're getting rather upset with our drones that are dropping some bombs with less to pinpoint discrimination than they would have us believe. And yet I found family planning workers and even quite a few religious leaders who understood that they were being overwhelmed by just astonishing population growth, that, that something had to be done about it. Uh, and, by the way, that there was um, a basis in the Quran for doing something about it. So they were distributing and happy to have the, the contraceptive tools to distribute. They just weren't necessarily keeping the donated by the United States of America logo on them. And I, frankly, have no problem with that whatsoever, because these people were choosing whether to use them or not. It is possible, then, uh, to have a, a global versal of population growth trend that... I've got several examples in this book where this has happened, you know, in a variety of places. You know, there was a time that Costa Rica had the highest population growth rate in the world, or or, or one one of them, you know, seven to eight kids per family, 
And then when contraception became available there, and it was an interesting cultural situation because it's a Catholic country, but Protestant churches suddenly saw an opening here. Because, you know, when the birth control pill came out, the Catholic Church actually considered legalizing it under canon law, but then that was rejected because uh, to say that they had been wrong for a century and proscribing it instead of prescribing it would basically say that you know, the Protestants had been right all along and in, in a ch- church that calls its leader infallible, you, you can't change your mind very easily. So Protestant churches started advertising on the radio, literally saying, do you mean that your church calls you a sinner because you want to have only the number of children that you can responsibly care for? Our church our church loves you and embraces you for being that responsible. And suddenly, you know, there were there was a huge uptake of contraception and a very significant, which probably by the end of the century is going to undo the Catholic majority in Latin America. You know, a, a, a very significant abandonment of Catholicism for Protestant uh, religions in Latin America. And Costa Rica is below replacement rate. Replacement rate is when two people have two children, which is population control. So Costa Rica's population is going to be coming down to to a more sustainable size starting probably in the next generation because it takes a couple generations for this transition to take place. Another example, Thailand, a country where an economist who was working for the government realized there's no way it was going to develop because every village that he went into with a development program was just swarming with kids. So he instituted condom distribution all over the country and got people sort of taking it as a joke, laughing about it, having condom blowing up contests and all sorts of things, but making them realize that if they had fewer kids, they could feed and clothe those kids a lot better. And it also was an opportunity because they coupled it with development for there to be incentives to make more money for your family so you could afford your family. This is a country that has a sex industry as an economic pillar, and they're below replacement rate right now, and they're considered one of the new Asian tigers. You know, the hard drive in your computer was probably made in Thailand, and that would not have been possible if 30 years ago they hadn't gotten into family planning in a big way. So, and I've got more examples in this. I mentioned a Muslim country. Iran brought its population growth rate down below below replacement because they had a population explosion after their Islamic revolution because they tried to build a 20 million man army to fight off the invading Iraqis and then they realized that wasn't really good a good idea because how are you going to employ all these people when they grow up and their popula- their population program was make contraception available so that there's nothing in the Quran against it, but most important of all, educate women. It used to be that a third of only a third of Iranian women could read or write. Today, 60% of women in Iranian universities, uh, students in Iranian universities, are female because they convinced women to stay in school. Because and while a woman's in school, she tends to not to defer her childbearing until her studies are done, and then she's got some 
skills, something interesting and useful to do with her life and to help her family economically. She may want to be a mother, but you can't do this with seven kids, so they tend to have two or fewer. Rich country, poor country. Everywhere I went, the best contraception is female education. On the average, educated female has two children or fewer. And if we could be educating women across the board and making contraception available throughout the world, which is which would cost us less per year than what our country was spending in Iraq and Afghanistan per month during the last decade, that would hugely reduce our environmental impact on this planet. Uh, it bring a, a lot of hope for the future. I, I'm curious, just to close, the previous book was The World Without Us. The last chapter in your new book is The World With Fewer of Us. Well, there has to be. I mean, if we want to continue on this planet. You know, for since the beginning of Homo sapiens, we were like any other species. Our birth rate was held in check by our death rate. Medical advances, and then suddenly our technological uh, achievements with creating much more food than nature could provide. I mean, literally, much more plant life on the planet due to artificial nitrogen fertilizer, which, of course, has its huge downsides, as we're finding out. But that's what caused our population to quadruple in the 20th century. Uh, that's totally abnormal. And any species that exceeds its its uh, resource base ultimately crashes. And my book goes into great detail of how the Green Revolution is already crashing. And I went to the Green Revolution centers, and they pointed out that their founder always said that population control has to be part of the mix because ultimately the paradox of food is the more you produce, the more lives you save. But then those lives go on to have more children, and population races ahead. And so we have... China or India surpassing China this decade is the most populous nation on earth. Pakistan is just completely around a muck. These are the first two countries where the Green Revolution was tried. And by the middle of the century, they're going to have many more people than the United States has right now. And this is in a country just the size of Texas, which only has 26 million people in it. I mean, this is craziness. And so many of us, we're all addicted to energy. You and I are using electricity right now. That means more carbon dioxide up the chimneys. Are, there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now than in three million years. And the last time, the seas were 80 to 100 feet higher than they are right now. But the world's bursting at its seams. We have to bring our population down. Either we're going to manage it gracefully, and we've got the tools to do that, and it's totally affordable. Our nature is going to do it to us, and that's not going to be so pretty. Uh, the new book is called Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, and the author is Mr. Alan Weissman. And, Mr. Weissman, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.